0: Welcome to this BJSM podcast, we're talking today to Rob Inchcliff, who's a professor of vascular surgery in Bristol in the United Kingdom. Um, he has worked for many years on vascular problems in athletes and is currently heading INSIGHT, which is the international study group for identification and treatment of endofibrosis. Welcome, Rob. Uh, welcome, Ross. Well, Rob, vascular problems... Are this is something that we don't really associate to athletes, given that they have no cardiovascular risk factors. If we talk vascular problems, we think more of like an obese smoker with, with, with diabetes. But it appears that uh, endofibrosis might actually be quite common in a subgroup of, of athletes. Um, can you explain a little more about the pathology, um, iliac endofibrosis? What's the difference to the, the normal uh, arterial disease that we know from our cardiovascular patients?
1: Um, So, ILEC artery endofibrosis was really first uh, described in the mid to late 1980s when uh, a number of elite cyclists were developing uh, arterial claudication. Um, It wasn't recognized before then, uh, and we're certainly seeing increasing numbers of patients with uh, endofibrosis, whether that's due to a true increasing incidence or whether people are um, cycling more or undergoing uh, more endurance uh, sports, uh, nevertheless, I think there 's an increased awareness of the condition.
0: Just let me go back to the to the pathology. What actually happens in the vessel? Uh, is it like plaques or something forming like we would know from from coronary artery disease, or is it another form of pathology
1: yeah, I think it 's very different to uh, atherosclerosis. Um, which would be the uh, the usual cause of patients who present with peripheral arterial disease or ischemic heart disease. Endofibrosis really represents a thickening of the vessel intima. I think what happens in the early stages is that the vessel, usually the external iliac artery just above the inguinal ligament in the groin region, probably becomes stiffer and doesn't appropriately vasodilate to accommodate the large blood flows that are required during intense exercise. And over time, the uh, thickening develops probably as a result, and it's all probably as a result of the um, micro trauma due to high blood flow during exercise, high blood pressure during exercise, and the repetitive stretching of the artery around the hip joint and under the inguinal ligament. And over time, I think the endofibrosis develops uh, and they causes a more progressive stenosis and reduction in blood flow. So normally we don't see any disturbance in blood flow at rest in these athletes, uh, but in the uh, in the early stages you, you're able to detect a reduction in blood flow. Uh, in the later stages sometimes they have a reduction in blood flow at rest. Um, so really the endofibrosis is a, a sub-endothelial problem with sort of accumulation of things like uh, smooth muscle cells and collagen and connective tissue. So it's quite distinct from atherosclerosis.
0: So so you mentioned that it was first discovered in cyclists back in the 80s. Now, um, is it only cyclists? And how common is it in athletes in general? Do we have runners getting it, or is it just the the elite pro cyclists who rides the Tour de France?
1: Um, I think um, certainly the awareness is greater in cyclists, and most patients who are treated are cyclists. That said, I think there's a predilection for all uh, endurance athletes, particularly those who have been training and racing for a number of years, but particularly cyclists, I'm seeing increasing numbers of uh, endurance athletes, triathletes, and uh, and, and marathon runners. in terms of the prevalence or incidence, we really don't have very good data on that. Um, some of the uh, smaller studies on screening of uh, elite endurance athletes, particularly in professional cycling teams, would suggest that using hemodynamic criteria the uh, it may be as common as ten or even twenty percent uh, in some subgroups of uh, of professional cyclists
0: right so so if you have an
1: athlete i mean let's let's
0: talk a little bit for the clinician that listens to this podcast i mean the typical athlete if i understand you right um with this condition he's probably like 25 to 30 years old he has had some 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 history of of training and he comes with pain in his leg he's probably seen some other doctors for, for this leg pain. They have diagnosed him with hamstring strain, some knee problems, some problems from the nerve, from his back, uh, from the spine, but nothing really helped in terms of treatment. So now he comes to see you. Um, uh, but what is the what is the workup that you would recommend and what kind of red flags
1: there are to tell you,
0: hey, this is a vascular problem?
1: I think that story you described really isn't that unusual. And most athletes I see who subsequently... Uh, have a diagnosis of ILEC fibrosis have been troubled with symptoms for, for two years or more, and they often arrive on my doorstep very frustrated. They've been unable to get a diagnosis, their performances have been um, impaired, and many of them are uh, considering ending their athletic career. And I think I would agree the challenge is how to recognize the condition earlier. And I think a key component, really, of that is to have a low threshold of suspicion. And the first uh, part of that is really to identify people at high risk, and those would be the cyclists and the endurance athletes, and particularly those who have competed or trained for a number of years. I think uh, the key symptom, really, is exertion-related, um, and the symptoms are often quite vague, when we're so so
0: exertion-related, if I might interrupt you, what does that mean?
1: Well, um, when people are um, cycling or running or doing other exercise, the pain is related to the amount of exercise they do. Uh, and the symptoms are often quite vague. Uh, and typically what we're talking about in patients with peripheral arterial disease is a, is a very typical cramp-like pain, which we call vascular claudication. But more often in cyclists and runners, they describe a feeling of a loss of power or a, or a dead feeling of the lower limb. Uh, but there are some good clues in the history. So the symptoms will usually commence during high-intensity efforts, usually at or around lactate threshold pace. And for cyclists, that's often during time trials or hill climbing. But importantly, the pain or the symptoms of, of lack of power will usually disappear quite rapidly within a few minutes of cessation of exercise, and that's quite a key, a key component of, of, of the history. I think it's also important to take a full medical history in these patients because although many of them don't have cardiovascular risk factors, um, it's important to identify patients who do have cardiovascular risk factors. So some athletes believe it are not are smokers and, and do have a, a family history of uh, premature vascular disease. I think examination, general physical examination is also important. Uh, what's their blood pressure like? What Do they have normal peripheral pulses? And something I take um, quite uh, careful notice of is really to auscultate or to listen for femoral breweries because although the, the sensitivity and specificity is not particularly high, uh, it's just a, a useful additional clinical sign which uh, builds up the picture. Uh, of, so of, of do, do you do that... At- leg or when the the athlete is sitting um i think i i mean typically um there are two positions so in the supine position and in a flexed position um i tend to do uh, listen to femoral bur- buries in both uh, both of those positions so, so if the
0: athlete has pain in his leg, where is the where is the pain usually situated? What's the the most regions where he feels this cramp, like this loss of power, this 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 feeling of stiffness in the leg? Where where is that located? Is that related to certain muscle groups which are basically um, uh, served by the vessel, or that's, can that be different?
1: Well, I think typically it's quite vague, um, and you have to appreciate that. The majority of cases of endofibrosis are located within the external iliac artery. So the majority of blood flow to the entire lower limb comes from the external iliac artery. So therefore, you can get symptoms throughout the muscle groups. And it's quite typical to have uh, pain throughout the muscle groups. Typically in cyclists, it's more related to the thigh, uh, but can can involve the calf as well. And much, much less commonly involves the buttock as well. And if the buttock's involved, then you're clearly thinking about disease which may be higher up typically in the common iliac artery, but endofibrosis is much more uh, typical in the external iliac artery.
0: So let's say we have now this athlete with the typical symptoms. He has the pain in those locations. You have auscultated him. He has the vascular brood. Um, he might have some differences in blood pressure between the two legs. What is now the next steps in the workup? What's, what investigations do you recommend to, to further get the diagnosis nailed down?
1: Well, I think the, the, the key tests really in the, uh, in the management and the diagnosis of this condition is the, is the exercise test. Many arterial tests um, in these patients are actually normal at rest, be it's MR angiography, CT angiography, digital subtraction angiography, duplex ultrasound, uh, will all be, in many of these patients, actually normal at rest. So what you're trying to do is to unmask the arterial problem. And to do that, you have to uh, exercise these patients. And really, the best way to exercise them is to get them onto their bike if they're a cyclist, or get them onto a treadmill if they're a runner and to exercise them until they have the pain, until they reproduce the symptoms. Um, and you you will have measured their uh, blood pressure in their brachial artery and in their arteries at the ankle, so the uh, posterior tibial artery and the anterior tibial or dorsalis pedis artery will have been done prior to exercise. You exercise them increase their blood flow, and try to unmask this stenosis uh, when they have the symptoms. And then it's very important as soon as they get the pain uh, to then get them from the treadmill or the bike immediately onto a couch in the supine position and to retest the pressures. And it's important not only to measure the blood pressure at the ankle, but also to measure the brachial blood pressure because these patients will be very hypertensive when they exercise most of them will have a brachial blood pressure in excess of 200 millimeters of mercury so um, it's possible to be falsely reassured by um, blood pressures uh, in the in the ankle which remain unchanged but actually in many athletes the blood pressure of the ankle will go up so you need to have you mean to be able to measure an ankle brachial pressure index so the relationship between the blood pressure of the ankle and the blood pressure in the arm. And that's that's a key diagnostic test.
0: Do you look for difference between the two legs as well?
1: I think there are two, uh, well, there are a number of things that I, I look for. Um, and certainly members of the INSIGHT group uh, who are a um, group of interested um, uh, clinicians with some experience of this problem. We're looking for two things. One is, uh, a difference between blood pressure uh, in both limbs and also a difference in blood pressure or AB, ABPI uh, in the limb pre and pre and post exercise. Now there is some controversy about exactly what uh, level of blood pressure or blood pressure change constitutes a diagnosis of, of, of endofibrosis. But certainly something in the region of in excess of 20 millimeters of mercury uh, blood pressure drop absolutely either between the limbs or in the in the limb that uh, has the symptoms will be an indication that this patient uh, could well have endofibrosis.
0: Uh, now, if we now have diagnosed the pathology with these means, now, what are the possible treatment options? I, I assume that if there's some kind of stenosis and in, in, in a cardiac stenosis somewhere you put a stent or you do some bypass surgery or something, would that be the same approach for the iliac artery?
1: There, there are a number of factors to take into account. Um, and we can talk a little bit about the natural history because that's important. But if we assume that we're going to go ahead and treat the condition... Uh, and I think that's a big assumption, and well, we can we can talk about that. But really, the options are to do nothing or uh, to um, to fix it. So, so what happens
0: if you do nothing? If you just wait?
1: Uh, that's very uh, a very important point. I think the natural history of the condition is not very well understood. Um, the current consensus seems to be that if you continue to train or exercise at the same intensity in most patients it seems that the symptoms are progressive and the disease is progressive. However that doesn't invariably seem to be the case and there are certainly some patients with relatively mild symptoms who will remain quite stable over a number of years despite continuing to exercise.
0: So can you can you uh change your bicycle position so that the floors look better in the arteries? Would that work or not?
1: Um, that, the, that is reasonably controversial. Some people um, have suggested that changing position on the bikes, uh, either by changing crank length or adopting a more upright position, uh, improves patient symptoms. Um, I don't think there's any robust evidence to underpin that. And a number of cyclists will try to find ways to recruit other muscle groups, for example, using more of the gluteal muscles to to try to improve their power output. Um, And I think if cyclists can find ways to deal with that, then that's fine. But in reality, I don't think there's any good evidence that changing position per se uh, improves the blood flow through the external linac artery.
0: So let's let's then come to a little bit to the to the interventional therapies. Now we, we have this this multi million cyclist uh, on a big contract, and obviously has the condition, and stopping his career or, or training less is not an option. So so what therapy can you offer him?
1: Um, well, I think the the first discussion that needs to be had with any athlete is really about the natural history of the condition, um, because uh, for. A number of athletes that i see they're coming towards the end of their career and any vascular procedure carries attendant risk Uh, so therefore um, you have to undertake these any any procedures on arteries um, with um, due diligence Uh, i think the options really amount to either an endovascular procedure or an open surgery procedure. I would really advise against any endovascular procedure, and that would include angioplasty and stents, because the recurrence rate after angioplasty is incredibly high. So patients will often feel that they get better, but within a few weeks, the lesion has uh, recurred or recoiled, uh, and stents do very badly in patients with endofibrosis. The external iliac artery has a lot of motion within it, and stents are not really able to deal with that motion. And um, there have been a large number of patients who've ended up with fractured stents, and that's a real problem. So I would advise against any endovascular procedures. The most appropriate approach, if you're going to um, repair these arteries, is to perform uh, open surgery, and that involves. Uh, removing part of the lining of the blood vessel, and that's called an endarterectomy. That removes the uh, stenotic uh, area of disease, and to make the artery wider, and that's called a, a patch angioplasty. And, and to do that, we usually use a, a vein from the inner inner aspect of the thigh called the great saphenous vein. So the artery is is out, for want of a better word, and widened, and that, and that's able to uh, increase the blood flow to the lower limb.
0: Right, so that sounds like a, like a big surgery. What's the, the duration? When I, I, when can the athlete return to sport after such a surgery? And is there any data on long-term outcomes of, of these surgeries yet?
1: You're exposing our lack of uh, robust data, and, and that's, a, that's a great concern, I think, for all athletes and for all healthcare professionals because a number of uh, athletes have been subject to these quite big operations without any robust long-term data. Um, Certainly, the majority of patients, and we're talking probably about 80% of patients, seem to resume uh, their athletic careers at a level which was greater than they had prior to surgery. But we don't have any data beyond four or five years. So that's a concern. It is big surgery and does carry risk. The... um, the typical amount of time to perform the procedure will be two to three hours, and patients will be in hospital for somewhere in the region of two to four days after the procedure. Uh, most athletes, I would suggest, would probably anticipate requiring three to six months out of competition to make a full full recovery. Uh, and the recovery process has to be a, a slow one, because... Uh, There are risks if you um, start to exercise too soon, that the patch hasn't settled, and uh, bleeding is a a potential risk, as as is infection. So it has to be a very um, slow and uh, methodical recovery.
0: No, I know that a large part of the audience is now worried because many of them are riding their bikes, you know, there's lots of mammals out there. So is it only for the elite cyclists or do sub-elite athletes and older athletes who just ride their bike on the weekend, do they get it as well?
1: Well, they say cycling is a new golf and um, there are lots of middle-aged men in Lycra, Lycra uh, wanting to cycle. And, and certainly we're seeing increasing numbers of um, middle-aged men with the... Uh, with the condition, a number of these guys, uh, and it's typically men, because probably about 85% of patients with the condition are men. But we'll often be training at quite intense uh, levels and will have trained for quite a number of years. Um, It's important to differentiate endofibrosis from atherosclerosis in those older patients. Um, But the key question is whether it's justifiable to subject these patients to what constitutes quite a major intervention for a, a lifestyle uh, a lifestyle choice because they will have other jobs and this is not not their method of uh, method of income so I tend to suggest for most of those patients unless they have very severe disease that um, simply stopping cycling is the most appropriate first step in the management because of the risks of procedure and the uncertain long-term outcomes.
0: Now, Rob, one, one last question to, to close this podcast. What don't we know about the condition? Where where do we need to go? Because you mentioned it's only been discovered back in the 80s. You know, there's not much long-term data on the outcome of the surgery. Where, where is the need for research in the area?
1: Well, I think it's very concerning, the, the lack of um, data that we have, and we have major limitations in our understanding of the condition. Um, and I think it's really the responsibility of healthcare professionals like vascular surgeons and, and also of, of the UCI and um, cyclists themselves to support research in this area. And I think we've taken one step forward with the development of the INSIGHT group, the International Study Group for the Identification and Treatment of endof- Endofibrosis, and we've um, tried to produce some sort of consensus on the diagnosis and management of the condition. We've brought together a number of international experts on the condition. Uh, and our next step is really to standardize our approach to the condition and to publish our outcomes on the condition because we really have a, a paucity of data on the outcomes. And I think if we're subjecting young, fit people to very major vascular interventions, and these interventions are really for non generally speaking, non-limb and non-life-threatening conditions, I think we need to have more robust data uh, before we subject these uh, young, fit, healthy people to to big big operations. So we need more data on the natural history of the condition, and we need more data particularly on the the long-term outcomes of surgery for the condition.
0: Well, thanks, Rob, for, for this insight, if I might say. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this podcast for the BJSM. Uh, remember, you can download the, the free app, which makes it very easy to save the, the podcast and listen to them uh, during these long train rides or car rides to work. And um, thanks again for listening.